0: Okay. Well, um, we're going to try to wrap up with one last session tonight on parenting. And uh, oh, we got lots of people now: uh, Shelley and Blake, and uh, Pastor Mark, and uh, we'll probably get a few more as time goes on. So, welcome, guys. And uh, this is our last class on parenting. But before we jump into that, we're going to be talking about uh, manners, technology, and dating. And I'll explain more about that when we get to it. But Um, let me just say a word about, uh, what we might call the elephant in the room, the, uh, coronavirus. The Bible is crystal clear that God is sovereign over absolutely everything all the time. Uh, the words of Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all and all means all, um, and it's such a precious truth. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And a, and a really stunning statement from Isaiah 46, verses 6 and 7, that men may know <clears throat> from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness causing well-being and creating calamity i'm the lord who does all these things even calamity comes from the hand of god and it's not for us to pass judgment on the reasons behind what god does we only see we only see a very tiny piece of all that god is doing how much how much do you see in this little black square up here on the screen. What, what, what's that a picture of? It looks dark. It looks foreboding. If all there was to that picture was just darkness. But that's all sometimes we see of the grand picture God is painting throughout history. And if we could see the whole picture all at once. It would be stunning in its beauty. And magnificence. And that is what God is doing. Parts of that are dark. Parts of that are difficult. But it's not ours to understand all of that. Ours is to trust. So may God help us all to cast our anxiety upon him because he cares for us. And let's not be taken up with fear. Let's be filled with faith and trust that God is accomplishing all of his own good and wise, albeit mysterious, purposes. So now, let's come... Uh, to our subject tonight and talk about manners, dating, and technology. Dude, that's rude. Mannerly children, or for that matter adults, I suppose, are increasingly rare in our society. Wouldn't you agree with that? Rudeness, inconsiderateness, ingratitude, self-centeredness, selfishness, table manners, and general etiquette are often in relatively short supply in our culture. You see it in the grocery store, you see it at Walmart, you see it in restaurants, you see it at public events. And I don't think it's because we're teaching our children to be rude. I think it's more the fact that we're probably not doing a very good job of just teaching our kids proper manners. Um, I see that in the lunchroom at school. And I'm not uh, telling tales out of school or anything, but over the last five years, the lunchroom... Here at Heritage Christian School, where we try to teach good manners, the lunchroom is more more challenging to manage. It's sloppier. The tables and the floor are messier than they were five, six, seven years ago. And I think it's just part of the general degeneration of our culture that we're losing um, this piece of culture that used to be just so central and important. We're losing a lot of mannerly behavior. So uh, manners need to be taught and lived out before children. Uh, So how do we do that? And is it really necessary? Is this just a throwback to an older generation that's dying out? Now, that picture's not really clear because of the glare on the TV screen behind me, but that's my mother. And uh, the guy over on this side is my older brother, and that's me. And it's probably a good thing you can't see me very well, but that was a lot of years ago and it represents a culture that is that is pretty much gone is teaching manners just something it's a throwback to an older generation that has long since died out or is there really a biblical justification for teaching manners to our children i want to say tonight that there is a biblical warrant for teaching manners to our children why should we well let's let's think about that together the general teaching of the bible On basic character traits ought to clearly establish that it's right and good and proper to teach manners to our children. So much of manners of being polite and courteous is connected to some very basic principles of character, which we should always be teaching our children, whether they're converted or not. So think about things like uh, the general teaching of the Bible on consideration of others. Kindness, patience, humility, love, compassion gentleness. Doesn't the Bible call all of us to all of those things? And those are the things that are the principles, the general uh, pieces of behavior that that are behind particular manners. So the Bible generally, in the character traits it calls us to practice, sets before us the foundation for manners. But in addition to the general teaching of the Bible, there is the compelling example of Jesus as a child. The information is brief because the focal point of Jesus' coming to the world was not his childhood but his saviorhood. But though it's brief, it's instructive. Luke 2, verse 40, And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then Luke, farther down in Luke chapter 2, And he went about with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued, that's with uh, Mary and Joseph, he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Wow. Now, there's a lot here we don't understand. (laughs) The Bible says great is the mystery of godliness, but This much is crystal clear as Jesus passed on from boyhood to adolescence and from adolescence to young manhood and to full blown adulthood. He grew as he made that that transition, he grew in favor with God and with men. God, the father was well pleased with him. He approved of his son, he approved of his growth and development, he approved of his submission, he approved of his willing obedience to his father's will. But Jesus was also increasing in favor with men. And while this text gives us no details, we assume, and I think rightly so, that his contact with men was the normal contact a boy growing up in Nazareth would have in that community. He worked for his father in the carpenter shop, no doubt. And dealt with customers. He knew how to work. He played with other children. He went to the synagogue. He worked in the garden. He tended the sheep. The rich think about the richness of his teaching as an adult. How 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 poignant and accurate and varied his teaching as an adult was. It reflects a young a childhood and a young manhood full of life and experience. And the Bible tells us that during that period of development into a man, he grew in favor with men. The word for favor is the word that is most often translated grace in the New Testament. He became a gracious young man. He was marked by those graces that made him attractive and pleasing to the people around him who observed him and who noticed his gracious behavior. He increased in favor with men. People enjoyed his presence. He was never a nuisance. He was never obnoxious or rude. He was polite and mannerly. And whatever the socially acceptable customs of the day were, he was well-versed in them so that as he grew, he had the admiration of his community. Now, you don't get that. You don't increase in favor with men if you're rude and self-centered and obnoxious. And please remember that this is said of Jesus precisely at the point when so many young people seem to lose all sense of politeness and, and become nearly oblivious to what is socially acceptable. At that period in his life, he was on the brink of full-blown adolescence. He was about to enter into his teen years when young people are typically self-conscious and self-centered and nearly oblivious to what's acceptable. Jesus was increasing in favor with men. He practiced good manners. He was polite. He was kind. He was thoughtful and considerate. He was gracious. He was grateful. He was helpful. He was a delightful young man. If, as our children grow, there's not a corresponding growth and development in that kind of favor, then we're coming up short in the kinds of things we're teaching our children. So what we need at this point what we as parents need at this point is a good dose of humility as parents to receive what other parents and maybe teachers may be saying about our children when your child's Sunday school teacher um, or a parent of your child's friend, when they come to you with a report on your child's behavior, you need the grace to receive it without making excuses for their rude behavior. Oh, she needs her nap. She's really tired. Oh, he's just all boy, isn't he? <laughs> at least... At least he says what he thinks. Well, she doesn't hide her feelings, does she? Isn't that cute? Now, any or all of those things may be true at any given time, but none of them should ever be called up as a cover for our failure to teach our children good manners. So, Jesus is, is the example for our children. He is also the Savior for our children, and if we are faithful in holding a high standard of behavior for our children, then they may well come to us from time to time expressing their frustration that they just can't do it. Dad, I can't do that. I'm not Jesus. I'll never be like Him if those moments ever come. If those words ever come out of your child's mouth, seize them as prime gospel opportunities and say, no, sweetheart, you can't do this on your own. That's why you need Jesus not just as your example, but as your Savior and as your Redeemer. Only He can change your heart so you really do want to be like Him. Only he can forgive your sins, even your rudeness and your selfishness and your pride. So trust him, not just for good manners, but trust him for salvation. So Jesus is our example. But now the biblical process, how do we teach manners to our children? And this I'm going to take like one minute here. This is not rocket science. We teach and we exemplify and we correct. We, we lay the manners out there that we 're working on this week or this month, and we we practice them so we 're an example they see it in us, and then, as they begin to learn how to practice this or that manner, um, then we correct them and not not harshly and, and, and rudely and and without any sense of of they 're just beginning to learn this new habit here no we we correct them carefully and with compassion and gentleness but we teach we exemplify and we correct and that's got to be a part of that's got to be a scheduled structured part of our parenting and it's one of those things that if we don't purposely set out to do it it will get lost in the dust of the gazillion other things we've got to be doing so so don't let that fall by the wayside make a concerted effort to teach, exemplify, and correct the manners you want to see in your children. So now, what manners do we teach our children? What do we teach them? The Bible doesn't give us a list of specific behaviors under the general category of manners, but it does lay down some general principles that ought to influence and inform our decisions about what we teach our children in the way of manners. I'm going to suggest several It's not an exhaustive list. They've grown uh, largely out of my interaction with the book of Proverbs and out of my interaction with kids for uh, 30-plus years. I didn't get them from Emily Post or Amy Vanderbilt. And if I were teaching this class in another culture, some of these things might be different. We have to be sensitive to local customs and cultures without being swayed away from biblical patterns of behavior. So here's my suggested list in no particular order. We need to be teaching our children respect for adults. Jesus, as a 12-year-old, was conversing comfortably with the doctors in the temple. And my point here is simply that he acknowledged their presence and he spoke to them. He looked them in the eye and answered their questions and politely asked them his questions. So teach your, your children to look adults in the eyes and not not just cruise on past them as if the adults don't exist i see that all the time teach them to look adults right smack in their eyes and and speak to them yes sir yes ma'am no sir no ma'am those are a thousand times more polite than. yep nope Do you have a good day johnny yep are you going to come back no nope nope not in your sweet life oh. <sighs> yes sir I had a wonderful day. Thank you. No, sir, I'm not going to be able to come back tomorrow because my mom's got me outside cutting the grass or whatever. But teach them to communicate and, and to acknowledge adults and look them in the eye and, and show some respect. Respect their presence. Respect for authority. I'm just going to really touch on all these. I'm not going to spend much time on any of them. Um. The groundwork for this is laid, respect for authority is laid in the fifth commandment, where children are required to honor their parents. The principle in that commandment is respect for authority, and it comes in many packages. Sunday school teachers, school teachers, police officers, government officials, school volunteers, or just other adults. And while we do need to teach our children to be wary of strangers, yes, we do, we must not go so far as to teach them to ignore the adults they know and trust. Respect for Authority, and that authority sometimes comes in a lot of different packages, and we need to teach our children to be discerning about that. Um, Respect for property. And I have in mind especially here other people's property, but that will seldom come if kids don't have respect for their own property. And that begins by teaching them how to take care of their toys. Um, I watch how children take care of their books and notebooks and And lunch boxes and coats and book bags and backpacks and and how they leave their sweaters and coats outside in the rain. And there's something missing in their understanding of the value of property. Not that we teach them to be greedy or selfish, but simply to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Doesn't everything come from God's hand? Hasn't he given us all things richly to enjoy should we treat it like trash? But then that spills over into how our children treat other people's property. I've watched children come into a home or a classroom where they've never been before. And in almost no time flat, they're jumping on the furniture, helping themselves to whatever is within reach, and generally behaving like they own the place. And they've never been in that room or in that home or in that, in that building before in their lives. I've watched children step over the same piece of paper on the floor, or walk by the wastebasket that has been missed. Or go by the water faucet that's still running. Without ever thought that they help take care of that. It's respect for property. They've not been taught respect for other people's property. And that does not help them increase in favor with men. But that begins by teaching them respect for their own property. So how do your kids take care of their own clothes? How do they take care of their room? Oh, yeah, but he's just messy by nature. Okay. What did God call Adam to do in the Garden of Eden? Dress it and keep it. And that responsibility didn't change after the fall. So our kids' rooms are like their garden, and they ought to dress and keep their gardens. And yeah, that's a process. And yes, it takes work. And yes, we need to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. But that's where it will begin, where our kids learn to take care of their rooms, their clothes, their toys, The simple little things that they play with every day. Be sure to put that away. We're teaching them respect for property. Uh, Number four, general considerateness. We've talked, uh, we just mentioned this earlier. It has so many applications. Cell phone etiquette. Saying excuse me when you walk between two other people who are talking. Saying excuse me when you must interrupt someone else. They're in a conversation over here. But there's something really important that needs to be asked. And Johnny comes up to Dad. And he needs to learn how to pull dad's shirt sleeve and say, excuse me, dad. And when dad turns his attention to Johnny, then Johnny can, can give his request. Um, saying excuse me, when you, excuse me when you bump into someone. Helping to pick up what somebody dropped when you bumped into them. Holding the door for someone with their hands full. Holding the door just for somebody else to get through. It's, it's, it's standard practice around here at school that when... There's a line of kids, and they're all going through the same door, and it's one of those doors that automatically closes, you know. And the first kid will open the door, and he'll just squeak through. And sometimes the next two kids can just squeak through without even having to touch the door, just squeak through. And the poor third or fourth kid in the line either gets banged right in the, right in the head, With the door, because he tried to squeak through too, but the door got just a little too farther closed. Instead of somebody pulling that door all the way open and just hold it for a minute. (laughs) It's not going to break your arm. So, general, see, general considerateness. Let somebody else have the first turn or the first piece or the first place in line. Pick up after yourself so mom doesn't have to do it all. Take out the trash. Without being asked, exercise good table manners. Chew with your mouth closed. Anybody do that anymore? Don't play with your food. Ask if you may be excused. Thank your mom or the hostess uh, for the meal. And, and that makes me think about gratitude. Gratitude. I'm just noticing my list here. We got a few more people. Thanks, guys, for joining. And, uh, Hope you're you're able to see and hear everything okay. Um, Gratitude. Dear your children know how to say thank you? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 describes a God-forsaken generation as ungrateful. The lack of gratitude is characteristic of a generation that God has forsaken. That is really sad. So we taught our kids to say thank you. Thank you to their Sunday school teacher for teaching them. To their brothers and sisters when they've watched them for a while. To their school teachers for helping them. To their babysitters. To the grocery store clerk. To the bag boy. To the bank teller for the sucker. To the waitress for the water. you are sitting around a table and there's mom, dad, and, and all, all the kids. And the waitress comes around every so often and refills the water. You say thanks. Thank you. Thank you. That's kind. Appreciate it. Simple things. Thank you to the person who held the door. Who gave them the first place or the first piece. I'll bet bet it was one of the most frequent things Jesus said when he was a child. Because you see, everything is grace, isn't it? Everything. Lord, thank you for my breath today. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for the breeze. Thank you for the food we've had to eat. Everything is grace. And if we burn that into our children's minds, they'll begin to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, I'm not sure if this is the best place to put this topic, but whether it falls into the category of manners or not, but we need to teach our boys how to be gentlemen and our girls how to be ladies. So I'll tell you right up front on this one, you can um, banish me to the the middle of the 20th century if you want to, but I'm going to say some things that probably generate some controversy on this subject of teaching our boys to be gentlemen and our girls to be ladies. But I'm persuaded that they're good things to do. So we need to teach our girls how to dress, how to choose their clothes, how to sit, how to walk, how to care themselves in a way that reflects dignity and modesty. We need to teach our girls how to relate to boys without flirting or being aggressive, how to be attractive without being seductive, how to think about beauty, how to sweetly submit to authority, how to be a godly wife, how to think about their home and having children, how to pursue an education that doesn't consume them. How to, um, and, and, and we need to teach those things to our girls, In a world that despises most of that. And we need to teach our boys how to work hard and make decisions. How to be leaders and protectors and providers. How to hold the door for a lady. How to let them go first. How to give up your seat. How to defend their honor. How to shake hands firmly and look someone in the eye. How to pursue a calling without that calling becoming a god. How to be the best you can be without being proud how to manage time and money, how to get to know a young lady without violating her honor or defiling his own heart. And we need to teach that to our boys in the world that despises most of that. It's a tough job, but it's, but it's needful. And so I want to I finish up this discussion on manners just by saying that manners are worth fighting for. And if we work at developing them in our children, it will serve them well when the day comes they're truly converted their mannerly behavior will genuinely adorn the gospel and it'll be a testimony to the beauty to the beauty of the gospel in an increasingly ugly world so let's uh, think carefully about teaching manners to our children okay we're going to shift gears here I want to talk a little bit about um, technology and and the place we as parents play in bringing our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord with regard to technology. And let me say something first about the blessing technology is. It is a good gift from God and can be harnessed for good and holy purposes. I I wish I could take this laptop that's serving as the camera and show you my little setup here. It's loaded with technology and I'm Recording the audio on my iPhone here, and I've got my laptop sitting right now. And I'm not going to move it because a plug is going to come undone here. I've got my laptop hooked up that's running the PowerPoint here on the screen behind me. Technology is a good thing. It's a good gift from God and can be harnessed and used for good and holy purposes. It's been a huge help in translating the Bible into languages where it's never gone. Pastors can have entire libraries on a thumb drive. I've got bookshelves. I've got two very large bookshelves, crammed full, and, and a couple other smaller bookshelves loaded and books stacked on top of books. And I've got just about that much right here on, yeah, you can't see it. It's, it's right over there on my laptop. And that small and light enough can go just about anywhere with me. Technology is great. Missionaries in some of the remotest parts of the world can have contact with family and friends and other missionaries a world away. It can be a wonderful evangelistic tool. It can be used as a good communication tool. It doesn't have to be abused. But here's the challenge we're up against with technology as it relates particularly to our children. The, the exponential increase in technology marketed increasingly at our children is a huge challenge for us okay it's a challenge for us as parents because we get sucked into this world of technology too and then we've got to shepherd our children through this this increasingly complex world of technology so it it's it's huge what's the what's the one statement that kids when they want something they come home from school or from wherever and they want one of what everybody else has got And what's the thing they say? And I wish you could type your answers into this little sidebar here so I could see what you're saying. But I bet you, some of you at least, are saying that what kids come home and say when they want, they want a phone, they want this, they want the new, they want a Nintendo Switch, they want a, is that right, Nintendo Switch? Or they want an Xbox or whatever that stuff is. Sorry, I'm old. They come home and they say, Everybody's got one. That's a crowd. If it's hard to make that picture out, that's a crowd. And everybody in that crowd is holding up their cell phone. Everybody's got one. That's now more accurate than ever before. There's the challenge of a new level of parental involvement if our children are to enter this supercharged atmosphere of technological wonder. It requires more of us. It just does. And don't forget that our children are still children. They're fallen, sinful children. whose discernment is still that of a child Or of a teenager whose discernment is not seasoned, veteran, and and in some ways are even more susceptible to the lure of what is impure and unholy and right at their fingertips. Let me give you a few stats. These are shocking. 4.4 billion active internet users in the world today. 4.4 billion. Worldwide, a million new internet users each day. Every Every time spent online every day. Six hours and forty two minutes online, every day. Wow. And you understand that um, technology is the gateway to pornography. that what we 're up against here is is absolutely. Staggering. A few more stats. 12 to 17-year-olds is the largest group of Internet porn users. Just let that sink in a sec. 90% of boys and 70% of girls younger than 18 admit to having seen pornography at least once. 32% of teens admit to intentionally seeking out pornographic content online. Pornography sites have more traffic than, sorry, that should say, than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. I mean, think about, think about the traffic Amazon, Twitter, and Netflix generates. And pornography generates more than all three of those combined. 64% of people aged 13 to 24 review pornography at least weekly. 49% of young people first viewed pornography before the age of 13. Some, some um, statistics say as young as 11 when they got their first glimpse of pornography. And you, and you know what is just staggering about that? It's right at their fingertips. It's in, it's in the palm of their hand. And we stick our heads in the sand if we don't take that seriously. At any given moment, you're only one or two clicks away from addictive pornography that has ruined millions and millions of lives. The internet is the avenue of sexual predators patrol looking for your children. One in five children between 10 and 17 have been approached online for sex. The relative innocence of our children now is a huge target, painted on its back, and there's a whole world of people out there taking target practice on our kids. Cyberbullies pursue their prey with greater venom than ever under the cover of relative anonymity. One in four teenagers has been the victim of cyberbullying, one in six have done it to someone else. The addictive nature of This technology is screaming at us, and we are not always listening. Some of you know the name Tim Challies. He's a blogger and an author and a pastor. He made this observation on his blog referring to smartphones. He said, these phones demand all of us. They accelerate the pace of life. They demand constant attention. And we get to the point where we can't live without them. Communication has changed. Technology has changed communication. We used to buy cell phones for the kids so we could keep in touch with them way back when they first hit the market so, so we could make sure they're okay and they could check in with us and, and now texting, surfing, and social networking have shut down communication with the very people we were trying to stay in touch with. Some parents, uh, you've, you've experienced this, some parents can barely get their kids' attention away from that screen in their hands, and some kids can barely get their parents' attention away from their own little cyber world. Rudeness is on the rise. You remember what we used to say about somebody who whispered to somebody else in public in the presence of other people? We used to say, that's rude. Now, when you pick up Johnny or Susie from school, as soon as they're in the car, they're locked into a screen. They're texting like crazy, right in front of you, That's kind of like whispering in front of somebody that we used to call rude. Texting and social networking have changed the nature of friendships and relationships. How they're established, maintained, and even ended. You can now be friends with people you've never seen, you don't even know. You can be rude and crude much more easily now. You can say things behind the faceless world of texting that you would never dare to say to someone's face. Think about, think about if a tech-savvy 20-something. A tech-savvy 20-something. Walked into a church service. And he's not been particularly a church guy, okay? But he walked into a church service where the pastor was preaching on the one another statements of the New Testament. Describing some of the practical outworkings of loving one another. And encouraging one another. And helping one another. And just all the one another stuff. The New Testament talks about he would probably be altogether clueless. What are you talking about? Extended conversations are on the endangered species list. We're going to lose the benefit of thought-provoking, stimulating, encouraging, helpful conversations because we don't know how to communicate in anything but short bursts of abbreviated words. Technology has done serious damage to our attention span. Dr. Michael Rich, associate professor at Harvard Medical School and executive director of the Center on Media and Child Health in Boston, said about young people, their brains are rewarded for not staying on task, but for jumping to the next thing. Young developing brains are becoming habituated not to focus, but to distraction and to switching tasks, not to staying tuned in to this one until it's finished what's that going to do to preaching over the next 5 years where the pastor stands up and for whatever 25 30 45 minutes expounds a passage of scripture that requires prolonged thought it requires the ability to stay focused and follow an argument what what is what is technology and what it's done to our attention span going to do to preaching in the next five years? Or well, what is it already done? What will our brains be like if they're robbed of needed downtime for extended periods of time? Research- researchers say the downtime to the brain is like sleep to the body. And our brains are getting less and less of it all the time. Screen time, TV, video games, internet use, texting, movies, etc. is having a huge impact on our children and young people. One interesting study showed that the more screen time a child or a teenager has, the less able they are to read the emotions on a real person's face. They're so used to artificial faces that are not living and breathing as fine as as. Um, oh, what do they call it, computer-generated images are. They're not real. They're not flesh and blood. They're not living and breathing. And the more our kids have been exposed to all that computer-generated stuff and all the technology and all all the video game action and so forth, the less able they are to read a real person's face and what they're saying with that raised eyebrow, or with that look, or, or with that frown, or with that smile, or with that, huh. Boy, we've lost. We've lost so much. Violent video games are dulling our kids' consciences to the real horror of violence, and they're giving a wicked and twisted view of sex a la Grand Theft Auto, Mortal Kombat, Call of Duty, Black Ops, etc. The use of technology is making it much harder for our young people to be content. The more time you spend on Facebook, the more you see what other people are doing, where they are, who they're with, and the temptation is suddenly to be unhappy with where you are, with who you're with and what you're doing, because somebody else's eyes got it better than you. And it stirs those those Causes of discontent in the hearts of our kids. And use of technology can lead to an increasing discomfort with silence and solitude, which takes only a moment's reflection to conclude that you could have a serious, that that could have a serious impact on spending time alone with God, His Word, and your own heart. Because our brains are so used to being constantly fed with noise and action and, and images. So, so to get alone and turn this thing off and just be alone with God in His Word and your own heart is becoming so Very rare in our kids and our young people. So what are we to do? What are we going to do? Well, what we shouldn't do is just suddenly ban all technology from our homes. It's not the technology that is evil. It's the way we sinners use it. So the solution, at least for those who are converted, begins at the cross Where we take all our own great weakness and our proneness to worship idols and our lack of self-control and our all too frequent love of the world and its things and we ask for forgiveness and for cleansing and for grace and for strength and we beg God for fresh grace not to be mastered by anything. Remember Paul's words. All things are lawful for me but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me but I will not be mastered by anything. Read that again. Was Paul writing about the 21st century use of technology, I will not be mastered by anything. That's huge. But then we put some practical resolves to that prayer for ourselves and our children, and we must lead the way. So what do we do? We establish limits. Just like we do other rules for your household. There should be time limits for computer, video game, texting, social networking. There need to be priorities established. What comes first? Homework, chores, video games? Is more important to text your friends or talk with your parents about your day at school? Establish priorities for your home. And do that in discussion with your children. If your child has a computer, where is it located? That's critical. Be sure it's located where the screen can be easily seen by others, and guess what? That's not in their bedroom. If they have an email account, you have their passwords and the freedom to read any incoming or outgoing mail. If they have a phone, you teach them that that phone is first God's, secondly it's yours, thirdly it's theirs. And having that phone or computer is a privilege, not a right, and it can be lost. That means you have access to their text messaging. And the agreement is that they don't delete messages. And if stuff shows up in your phone bill that's not on their phone, then you've got a trust issue. You need to have some sort of filtering software. And I, I realize I'm flying through these things and we could stop and talk about any of them for a long time. But you need some sort of filtering software installed on your computer and even on your mobile devices. I'll, I'll recommend a couple things in a moment. You need to spend some time teaching your children what to do and not to do with their phones or computers. There are certain kinds of information you never, 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 never give out over social media. Because, because there are stalkers out there looking for your children. And they'll find them. You need to think through the whole issue of chat rooms and just say No. To them, because that's precisely where sexual predators get information on your kids. You ought to know what music is on your children's iPods or phones. That's hard to do. Used to be you could just play, okay, when I was a kid, you just looked at their records. Anybody even know what a record is anymore? And then it was looked through the stack of their cassette tapes, and then it was flipped through their CD covers. But now it's, it's, so do all their songs come through your iTunes account? That's how you keep track. It's your iTunes account and you have the password and they don't. Man, that's, that's hard. That's really strict. Have you heard some of the music? That your kids may be listening to. Can they download apps to their phones on their own? Or do they have to come to you for the password? Can they access the internet generally? Or only sites that have not been blocked by you? Do they have access to your computer phone when you're not using it? And can they get on the internet without having you enter a password? Do your kids keep their phones with them at night? Or do they turn them into you when they go to bed? And I hope they turn them into you when they go to bed. I remember, boy, a lot of years ago, one of our boys got in trouble. He was a reader. And he got in trouble, in pretty big trouble. Because when it was bedtime, it was bedtime. And the particular rule was that after a certain point you don't read. You turn the light out and you go to sleep. And there he was under the covers with a flashlight and a book. There was nothing wrong with the book. Uh, but now, if a kid's got a phone in his bedroom, he can have access to almost anything. And, and I, you don't want that. Um, no phones at night. Are they allowed to bring their phones to the dinner table with them? Do you bring yours, Mom? Dead. how many of you have been in a restaurant and you've watched a young couple on a date even a married couple and they're sitting there absorbed in their phones when they're supposed to be on a date with each other so you've got to set limits you've got to have rules signed contracts are not a bad way to go to govern what your kids may and may not do with um, social media and their phones and their computers and internet access and so forth, there are a number of filtering blocking programs available that can be installed on your computers, iPads, or mobile devices. I recommend two: Net Nanny, 99 a year, and Covenant Eyes, fifteen ninety nine a month. They but they work differently. Covenant Eyes net, net- Nanny blocks certain things, and you have to have passwords to get past that if, if that is even necessary. And Covenant Eyes sends emails to people on your uh, accountability list. And if you go to an inappropriate site, your, your accountability partner will get an email, so-and-so visits such such a site. And it's really a helpful way to keep, um, to keep pure, to keep your family safe from so much of the garbage that's out there. A um, couple of books, let me recommend, and these covers don't come up well on uh, the screen up here. So the first one, uh, yeah, it's all backwards to me. That one right there is called You, Your Family, and the Internet by a guy named uh, David Clark. And that's available for 12 bucks on Amazon, three ninety nine on Kindle. And um, the next one, right there, is by Tim Challies, I mentioned him before, called The Next Story, Faith, Friends, Family, and the Digital World. And I'd recommend either of those or both of those resources if you want to do some further uh, research and get some more ideas. So, all right, you get the idea. And, and I, I, I would not be at all surprised if many of you say, I can't afford to spend that kind of time monitoring my children's use of technology. And you know what my answer is going to be to that. You can't afford not to. The souls of your children are at stake. But I can't learn all that stuff about smartphones and computers and iPad. You can't afford not to. And while it's perfectly legitimate for some things to be appropriate for adults and not for children, we as parents must set the bar high in our own use of technology so that our children are not getting mixed messages from us, from us on this critical issue of technology. Okay. Um, I'd be happy to take questions on that. You're welcome to email me, text me later, or give me a phone call on any of this. I'd be happy to field questions. Uh, but let's go on, since you're not actually sitting here in this room. <laughs> let's... Uh, want to talk about the last thing we're going to think together about and that's dating and let me say first i'm not going to answer all your questions and i'm not going to tell you exactly what you must do i'm going to give you some things to think about as you work through this issue and as you set the standards for your home and your children and you all won't end up doing the same thing and that's okay first thing I want to emphasize is that preparing your children for healthy relationships with the opposite sex begins long, long, long before they're old enough for those relationships. Preparing your children for healthy relationships with the opposite sex begins long before they're old enough for that. Uh, for example, teaching your children the true meaning of friendship. Friendship. Um, is critical, especially that true friends are not selfish. How many dating relationships wind up in ruins because one or both of the partners in that dating relationship were selfish and they were only in it for what they could get out of it for themselves? We teach our kids the meaning of true friendship. And especially the true friends are not selfish. You treat your boys. You teach your boys how to treat their sisters and their mother. That lays critical groundwork for how they'll treat other women as they get older. They must learn how to treat them as ladies. And you don't treat a lady like a sex toy. Teach your boys how to respect their mother as a lady. Teach your boys. Yeah, I know they're going to rough and tumble with their sisters and I get all that and that's fine. But teach them that there's a line which they don't cross. They treat their sisters like the ladies they will be becoming. Help them. Help your children develop a biblical self-image. That's crucial. So that when the time comes, they understand clearly that their worth and value is not tied to their good looks, to the number of guys that call or girls that flirt. In our culture, not having a date is a serious blow to your self-image. You're even considered pretty worthless if you haven't had sex by the time you're 17 or younger. Your self-image has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do, we've talked about this before, with your being made in the image of God. But that's not the way society functions. They don't give a rip about being made in the image of God. What they give a rip about is is being seen as really valuable and important by society standards. And that means you've got Girlfriend and girlfriend and girlfriend and boyfriend and boyfriend and boyfriend and you've had sex before you before you've got a driver's license. So help your children develop a biblical self image that is so critical to their to their to helping them resist the temptations that will come by the truckloads as they as they move through their preteen and teen years. You dads need to develop healthy relationships with your daughters. Develop a healthy relationship. Loving, appropriately affectionate relationships with your daughters. If your daughter grows up, never quite sure if you approve of her. She will start to look for that approval. And she may come to find that approval from some place you would never Want it to come from? There are plenty of guys out there more than willing to give huge approval to your daughter, who's not been getting it from you about about who she is and about how she looks and about what a lovely young lady she's becoming and all the appropriate ways to express affection to your daughter so that she knows that her dad loves her. Be sure, dads, you develop a healthy, loving, appropriately affectionate relationship with your daughter. Be careful about what you let your kids see, hear, and read. That will have a profound effect on their whole view of developing a relationship with the opposite sex. The whole issue of character development comes into play here. Not only are you developing character in your boys that will make them good husbands and the girls good wives, but you're teaching them what character qualities God delights in and therefore the character qualities they should be looking for in a potential spouse. So guard carefully what you let your kids see, hear, and read because there's, there's tons of stuff out there aimed purposely right at your kids that is full of all the wrong standards. And that will influence the way our kids develop in their thinking toward the opposite sex. So be careful of what you let your kids see, hear and read. And be careful of letting the world's standards carry weight with you. The world's philosophy of dating is right out in the open. You start in middle school or earlier. Having a boyfriend or girlfriend is critical to your acceptance, to your social acceptability. Sexual appeal is essential. Sensuous behavior is expected if you're going to succeed. And if you're going to have friends and if you're going to be cool and if you're going to be in the in crowd, you've got to have sexual appeal. Sensuous behavior. Seduction is part of the game. And I don't mean just for girls here. Okay? Boys can be seductive. Powerfully so. And sex early on is almost a given. And boyfriends and girlfriends are not much different than a styrofoam cup. You use it a time or two and you throw it away. Then you go get another one. What about that is worth copying? Pray tell. But if we just throw our kids out there into the dating scene, they will copy what is all around them and what they see around them is not worth copying. Romans 12.2 is still in the Bible. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We need help our kids. We need to help our kids with that. To not be pressed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's the word of God that does that transformational work in our kids. Typical dating relationships throw young people who are relatively immature together in situations that call for large measures of mature behavior and decisions. It's a recipe for disaster. Dating prematurely can cultivate emotions and commitments that have no appropriate end point. They will either end in pain or sin or both to date prematurely. But man, you say, you're painting the picture about as bad as it can look. Is it really all that bad? Well, I'm painting the picture of Typical dating in pretty dark colors simply because almost every premature dating relationship has the potential to become that bad. The younger our kids are. And if we don't recognize that, we've got our heads stuck in the sand. On the other side of the dating relationship is this thing called courtship. You just don't date around. You basically wait until you're old enough to seriously pursue. And I, this is this is a huge summary, and there are all kinds of takeoffs on this. Okay, this is a broad generalization. You basically wait until you're old enough to seriously pursue a relationship that has marriage in view, not guaranteed, but in view. And you typically ask the girl's father for permission to get to know his daughter, and you zero in on her with the view someday possibly to marriage. Typically, with some pretty tight rules about physical involvement. Now, that's a that's a. Brief, all too general summary, but that's kind of sort of what it is. And it has much to commend it. It postpones a serious relationship until both people are more mature and ready. It reduces a great deal of temptation early on in the relationship. It shifts the focus from a physical relationship to one where they both work on getting to know one another. It involves a pretty good level of parental involvement, accountability, but there are some there are some possible downsides to courtship. There's evidence to suggest that more courtship marriages end in divorce than marriages that are going to have typical old-school dating relationships. And by old-school dating relationships, I mean way old-school. Not the, not the popular current dating relationships that are sex-saturated, but old-school dating relationships. They were not focused on sex. There's a tendency for those whose parents are committed to courtship to shy away from beginning any relationship at all with the opposite sex because of such an early on understanding that marriage is in view here. And so, and, and so they back away. I, I, I don't want to start dating that girl because I'm not sure if I want to marry her yet. The end result of that view is that a lot of singles in their late 20s and early 30s are not married and they don't have a lot of prospects because they've been afraid to have any level of relationship with the opposite sex lest it be taken as an early proposal of marriage. Um, And and that's that's broad stroke and there are lots of exceptions to that. But obviously there's a time and a place for a young man and a, a young woman to get to know each other. And what we must guard against is that happening prematurely, happening too soon in a way that can only end in pain and or sin. But let me say that what is premature for one person is not. For another, you must know your own children... And their level of maturity and the strength of their character and the purity of their motives, as much as it's possible for a parent to know. You need to monitor their relationships. You may need to put the brakes on how quickly a relationship is progressing. You may need to tell your son or your daughter that the relationship they're developing is not a good one. My mother did that for me when I was 20 years old. And I hated it. And she was right. I didn't like it one bit, but deep down in my gut, I knew she was right, and that relationship came to an end. And about, uh, I don't know, maybe six months later, I started dating the young lady who has now been my wife for almost 48 years. My mom made a good call. We need to monitor relationships. The radical degeneration of our culture makes it all the more difficult for parents to oversee their sons or their daughters' pursuit of a relationship with a boy or girl. And so we've got to really work at being involved um, on this whole dating courtship relationship dynamic. Um, But it's a part, parental involvement is something I'm not willing to concede that "Ah, we really don't need to do it now. No, we do. Another complicating factor is that while our culture is radically degenerated, especially with regard to sex and relationships, so also has the maturity level of our children and young people. While society has pushed hard through TV and movies and advertising and social media to grow our kids up much faster and to treat them as far more mature than they are, not only... Have our children not kept pace with the maturity being pressed upon them, they've actually declined. They are less mature, their character is less solid than it was a generation ago. And that's a recipe for disaster in the realm of relationships. Now, if we take the book of Genesis seriously, marriage is generally and ultimately God's design for our children, we should assume... That it's God's will for our children to someday be married. And it's our responsibility as parents to prepare them, guide them through the sometimes complicated maze of figuring all that out. And that will look different for different families. But my plea is that you don't back away from being intimately, carefully, thoughtfully, wisely involved in your child's pursuit of a spouse, both in terms of giving them guidance and encouragement. And in monitoring the development of their relationships along the way. They need you desperately. So each of you, need to wrestle through these issues that have to do with dating and come to your own conclusions for your family. And then be sure you hold those conclusions with a Romans 14 attitude of not regarding with contempt the one who has a more narrow restrictive view or not sitting in judgment on the one with a greater measure of liberty. Um, Okay, um, we're down to the end and I'm just a couple minutes over. I, I hope you'll not soon forget the encouragements, the huge encouragements from Scripture that say, And He, God, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, parents, for powers perfected in parental weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my parental weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man for the holy work of parenting. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, for us and our children, according to the power that works within us for parenting, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And I especially hope That you'll never forget the joys of raising children. Yes, they can break your heart. They can. They can disappoint you. But also know that there are joys in the rearing of children that do not come with anything else ever. And as you watch your children grow. Through all the firsts, the first bicycle ride, the first word, the first spoonful of food that actually made it all the way into their mouths, the first good day of pie training, the first report card, the first class project, the first glimmers of faith. As you watch them grow, you're just amazed that this child came from you. You're filled with awe that God would entrust such a gift to you. You rejoice when their own convictions begin to form and your heart swells with thanksgiving when God draws them to himself. There are the joys that come as you watch them grow from toddlers into teenagers into men and women. And you wonder sometimes how it all happened. And while there are a thousand things you wish you had done differently, a thousand things you wish you had known, a thousand mistakes you wish you hadn't made, a thousand words you wish you could take back, Yet there's a deep satisfaction and a delight that is like no other. When you look upon your son or your daughter standing before you suddenly grown up. And you wouldn't trade it for anything. The sleepless nights, the gut-wrenching decisions, the times when it was so hard to say no, the beaches you died on, the lines you drew in the sand, the late night discussions, the calloused knees, were a price you'd gladly pay again the joy of parenting. Enjoy your children. Raise them well. To the glory of God. Thanks for being such a good part of this class. Sorry I don't get to see your faces tonight. Please uh, feel free to text or call if questions linger. And I'd be happy to take time to talk with you. And may the Lord bless you on your parenting journey. Okay, not sure why that thing's not stopping. But y'all go ahead and shut down (laughs) and work on getting this thing to quit. There we go.